All right, um, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, man, this is super encouraging just to see how many people are here. Uh, we're, we're packing things out. And if we need more chairs, there's some over here. We can go grab some from the sanctuary as needed. Um, and again, if you don't have the handouts, they're at the end of the island over there um, where the pizza used to be. Um, it's, it's not there anymore. But um, let me just say a couple things, and then I'll turn it over to Jim. Um, one, um, as you, I mean, take notes on, on these handouts as you want. Um, Jim's going to be going through a PowerPoint that roughly correspond to that. Um, but as you have questions that you want to ask later, go ahead and write them down on, on your notes so that you remember, you know, maybe a specific question that you want to ask. Um, but the way the night will go is Jim's going to really give us a lay of the land. What are we talking about with eschatology? What are we talking about with millennial views? What are the, the millennial views? Um, he'll get into that, give us the lay of the land. And then from there, um, Mark and myself will come up and we'll have a dialogue of, of just asking some questions and letting these two brothers speak and, and help us understand uh, how this impacts our lives today. And then after that, we'll have a Q&A where we really open it up for all of you uh, during that time. So that, that's what it'll look like. But let me pray and I'll turn it over to Jim. Father, we thank you again for this evening. Uh, God, I thank you uh, for Jim. I thank you for Mark. I thank you for ways that you uh, have equipped them. And I pray that you would uh, speak through them by your spirit, uh, according to your word, that you would give us uh, instruction uh, tonight. And uh, Father, I pray that you uh, would help each of us in this room to grow up in maturity through this conversation, uh, that we would not be tossed to and fro, but that we would be um, really stable and mature in you uh, based upon the doctrine that you have in your word. Uh, so, Lord, bless this evening. Would it be glorifying and honoring to you? And would you help us uh, to understand and to live in light of your reign? We pray all this through Jesus, our King. Amen. Our day-to-day -day processing of what's going on in the world. Some have very, very clear understanding. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Oh, I don't have to yell. Some have very clear understanding of your view of Christ returning, of his kingdom on earth, of the millennial reign of Jesus, of how it all fits together. You have, I would say you have a developed eschatology. Some of you here may say, I don't have anything developed. I'm actually, I, I avoid it. It seems too complicated or it seems too, just too out there. I, I can't access it. The goal tonight is for us to make it accessible. And the really, really deep goal tonight is that Mark and I, AJ will help, We'll, we'll continue a conversation we've been doing for about a month and a half of what are the implications of what we're going to talk about tonight for our, for our present day, for our faith, for our hope, for our obedience, for our living in our, in our culture, for our leading our families. What are the implications right now? So what I'm going to try to do, 20 to 30 minutes, is just give you, like, like it says there, the lay of the land. The challenge for that is, is every one of the things we're going to talk about tonight are worthy of immense discussion. We're going to actually skip over things that I spent entire semesters on in seminary because we, they're going to be from a different hermeneutic of Scripture. It's not going to be worth our time to try to explain to you why maybe a view that we wouldn't hold to scripturally is even a view that is, is, is held because a whole different biblical interpretation grid. And so tonight we're not going to do all that. So think with me of a house being built and think with me of the foundation being set and of, let's just say, the cinder block being laid. We're not going to put walls up. We're, gonna, we're not going to put drywall on it. We're not going to do electrical. We're not going to do all the, all the mechanicals. We're just going to try to get 
a little bit of the structure built with the basic materials that we have so that we can have a discussion about the implications today. So um, I'll talk fast and then our dialogue will slow down a lot, okay? I'm gonna do a lot of repeat so that you'll see, um, hopefully have a sense of what each of these major views of the millennial reign of Christ are. Let me read this quote from John Calvin. It's actually a prayer uh, that he ended his 97th lecture on the minor prophets. Uh, May we daily solicit thee in our prayers and never doubt, but that under the government of thy Christ, thou canst again gather together the whole world, though it be miserably dispersed, so that we may persevere in this warfare to the end until we shall at length know that we have not in vain hoped in thee and that our prayers have not been in vain when Christ shall exercise the power given to him for our salvation and for that of the whole world. You just hear the hope in his prayer. You hear the expectation of the power of Christ in the present as well as in the future. Even though he would say that the the church on earth at at times and in sundry ways is miserably dispersed. That's what we're going to tap into this evening. Now, what is eschatology? Eschatology is a, I'll just read what I've written for you, a belief held sacredly or assumed casually. Depends on who you are, right? regarding death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul, of humankind, and of all creation. Even non-believers, if you will, have an eschatological frame of of reference. They believe something happens upon death. Um, Tonight, we're not going to talk about how the Apostle Paul says that it's better to die and go and depart depart and be with Christ right away. But if he keeps me here, I'll serve him here. Paul says things, the scriptures say things about when we die, what happens? Well, there's no intermediate state of, 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 of soul sleep. The scriptures say we go to be with Jesus. Our soul goes to be with Jesus. We're not going to talk about that tonight, but that would be an eschatological conversation point of, the, of judgment. Scriptures say there's a day coming, the day of the Lord. What will be the trajectory of all humankind? Prior to when Jesus returns, what can we expect of the kingdom of Christ? And then when he comes, what will his reward look like to the elect? And what will judgment be? Eternal judgment, which we'll read in a second from Revelation 20, for those that reject him. What is the the kingdom's relation to all creation? The church is the elect who believe in the gospel, but... Is the kingdom the church, or is the kingdom bigger than the church? What is the, what is the reign of Jesus over his kingdom, and what does that have to do with creation? All right, so there's significant present implications in all of that, and that's what we want to try to tap into tonight. Say Jim? Yes, Mark. I would just add um, a slight twist to that, in that um, while we may not all articulate our eschatology belief, all of us live an eschatology. Uh, we live it out somehow. We may not be able to define it, but we live some eschatological view. I hope you tonight will you'll find some place where you live. It is a necessarily practical, theological, spiritual frame of mind. It, it's lived out. So I'm going to try to do building blocks slowly. We won't do as much Q&A now. Do write your questions down because we'll have lots of time for that. The millennium comes to us in the scriptures from Revelation chapter 20. And so I'm going to just read it out loud with you. You have it printed for you in, the, in what, we, what we produce for you. Um, and I would love for you just to kind of track along. I, I'm going to say a few things about the bold font and the capitalized words. We're not going to 
define them fully right now, but those are the words that we'll kind of need to sink our teeth into tonight. So John had a vision. This is part of his vision, Revelation 20. He said, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So think about Satan is bound, and the, the millennium is the thousand year. Some take it literal. Some take it to be more figurative. The book of Revelation is indeed an apocalyptic book with all sorts of visuals. So a thousand years, the enemy is bound, and the enemy was thrown into the pit and shut it. And the angel sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who'd not worshiped the beast or its image had not and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you have this reigning image of this millennial time period. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. We're going to talk about that. What is the first resurrection? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests to God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And, there, and, and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. So Revelation 20 gives us this, this picture of the millennium, a thousand years, reign of Christ, in which his people reign with him in which at the end of that time, the strong man, Satan, who's been bound, will be released to deceive the nations all the more. The tribulation will get worse and worse in that time frame. And then you see that the final judgment will be cast upon Satan, upon the beast, upon the false prophet, and he will be tormented forever in the lake of fire. Okay, so that's Revelation 20. Um, I have enjoyed the last, I'll just say, eight weeks, trying to re remind myself and rehearse what 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 is my eschatological position? It's been a long time, and that's not something that I should be proud of. I, th these things are here for our edification, and how I live today should have everything to do with what I believe will be the future based on what the Scriptures present to us. So we're going to get into this. Millennium, different views, what is it, what are the implications of it? So let me try to be very basic temporally, the history of the church has only had two different views of what the millennium is, or when Jesus returns in relation to the millennium, excuse me. Temporally, there are those who believe that Christ will return before the millennial reign, before the millennium, excuse me, and those who believe that Christ will return after the millennium. So there's really only two views, temporally speaking, pre-mill, post-mill. But hermeneutically, that, that word just means um, interpretationally, we all have a hermeneutic of how we read the scriptures. So as the church has 
historically read scripture, four views have come to the surface, but I'm going to say three-ish because we're not going to talk about all of them. There's a couple different versions of pre-millennialism where Jesus comes before the millennial reign. Then there's amillennialism, and ah just means there's not. That's what ah means, not a millennium. That's not actually a very accurate description. Amillennialists believe there's a millennium, but they don't believe it's going to be literal in the way that it is lived out prior to Christ's coming. Postmillennialists believe that Jesus is going to return after the millennial reign. I'm going to get into the specifics in a second. Postmillennialists and amillennialists would both say that right now the church age is the millennium and that Jesus is going to return after that time frame. Is, and the postmillennialists are expecting the, that the millennial reign will be more literal on earth than amillennialists believe it will be. So I'll try to unpack this. All right. So what I'm going to do to try to sort of cement it, you've got some things in front of you. Mark produced this uh, grid right here that's got the three different kind of, it's the columns right there. I'm not going to go exactly through this. I'll, you'll, I'll use the same wording. But what I want to do is I'm going to go through the tenets of pre-mill, then the tenets of amill, then the tenets of post-mill. So we'll use this sheet. I'm going to go all the way down one at a time. Then I'm going to show the, show the pictures. Some of you are visual people of all three. That'll be like the second time I take you through it. And the third time I take you through it, I'm going to show you the text of Scripture that most of those camps will point to to say this is where we find our support in Scripture. Okay? So that way you get kind of three times through it. So I will talk fast, but it'll slow down once we look at the pictures. Pre-mill position of Jesus' return, that he will come physically prior to the millennium. That's their, that's their stance. The millennium is a period of righteousness, peace, and prosperity for Christ's kingdom on the earth. <clears throat> There will be a significant gap between the return of Christ at the first resurrection and the judgment of the wicked at the second resurrection. So pre-mill will believe that Jesus, in some regards, comes twice. He comes once and raptures the church out. He comes a second time when he will basically present the new heavens and the new earth, care for his own, be the rescuer, but also be the judge of eternity. Okay? You'll see that in the drawings in a second. Pre-mill position would hold that the church age and the, and the millennium are different ages. Pre-mill position would say we're in the church age right now. The millennium is yet to come. That's an important thing to hold for a second. Pre-mill would say the Old Testament prophecies of prosperity are to be taken literal. So the millennial kingdom will be experienced as a restored Jewish state with Christ ruling bodily from Jerusalem. Okay? That means that that rule has to be defined in some way. So some pre-mill will say that Christ will rule militarily and subdue the world with a sword. Some say that. Others de-emphasize that Jewish element and certainly even the militaristic element. They stress that the millennium is like sort of a preparatory stage for the, the, the new heavens and the new earth, the, the kingdom that's going to ultimately be established where God has his elect people with him forever and ever. Pre-mills would have a dis discontinuity between the church and Israel. Huge, huge, important reality. A discontinuity. Therefore, if there were Old Testament prophecies that were saying what the Jewish people should expect, they are for the people of Israel. There's a discontinuity with the church, and you'll see something different when we look at Amil and Postmill. Seventh, the preaching of the gospel through the whole earth prior to Christ's return will not yield full cultural trans transformation as the world will grow worse and worse unto ultimately a tribulation at the end of the age. Okay, that's pre-mill. I'll show you the picture and hopefully it'll make more sense in a second. Although the pre-mill pictures are rather complex. Just 
an observation. Amil's position, Christ will return after the millennium because the millennium is the present reality. The thousand-year reign of Christ is a symbolic period of time, and the, the binding of Satan coincides with when Jesus said the strong man is bound in, in the Gospels. And so therefore, the millennial age is now in which the gospel will move forward in the hearts of men because the strong man is bound. And so you see the church age and the millennium, this inner adventual age between the first advent of Jesus and the second advent are considered the millennium. Amils would say the millennium, though, is not a literal semi-golden era of earthly prosperity for the kingdom. Rather, it has restricted blessings uh, for either those who've already died and are in the, in the heavenly state with Jesus right now, or the blessing of Christ ruling in the hearts of believers now. So, so the gospel will penetrate the heart, but there's not an expectation in, in the Amil position that the gospel is going to transform the culture and the world around us. Not literally. Fourthly, the church is the visible form of Christ's kingdom in the world. Um, you can hear that as the church age is the millennium. Fifthly, the single return of Christ at the end of the age will synchronize with a general resurrection and the judgment for believer and un unbeliever, respectively. Amil and postmill are looking forward to and believe the scriptures teach that there's one return of Jesus. He doesn't come the first time to rapture the church away. He comes one time at the end of the age. He will judge the wicked. He will also bring his righteous kingdom fully for those who are his. So Amil and postmill, but you'll, you'll see this parallelism. There's a continuity between the church and Israel. I will just say this, the covenantal continuity is all over our confessional documents. You should hear this if you're a part of Christ Community Church. In fact, this last week when I was preaching in 1 Corinthians, and Paul says, our fathers passed through the sea. Remember, he's writing to the, the Gentiles in Corinth, but he was saying, your father's Abraham. All right, so I'm just going to say that this should be a little bit more familiar to you if you've been at Christ Community Church. Number seven, Old Testament prophecies of prosperity are to be taken figuratively as pointing ahead to the eternal state or the spiritual condition of the church. There's not as much looking for literal interpretation of everything as relates to Jerusalem or to the Israelites only because the scriptures say that we have one father, our father's Abraham. So you have that continuity of the church in Israel framing how Old Testament prophecies are read. Number eight, the preaching of the gospel through the earth will not yield full cultural transformation or the pervasive success in converting sinners, okay? There will not be an expected literal earthly millennium like post-mill would hold, but there is the capacity for the gospel to penetrate the hearts of the elect whom he's calling to himself. Number nine, there will be a more or less parallel development of good and evil during the millennium with evil intensifying toward the end of the age as we see in Revelation 20. So that's an important difference in what I'll show you in post-mill now, is Amils would say, we expect a parallel existence of evil and righteousness in the world until Jesus returns, based on certain passages in Scripture. Okay, post-mill. Christ will return after the millennium. The millennium is the present reality. It's the inner eventual church age. Same two first points as Amil. The millennium, though, is evidenced by the growth and maturation of righteousness, peace, and prosperity for Christ's kingdom on earth, visibly represented by the church through a gradual conversion of the world to the gospel unto a semi-golden era for the kingdom of Christ on earth prior to Jesus' return. A very hopeful expectation of the cultural affect of the gospel. The single return of Christ at the end of the age will synchronize with a general resurrection for believers and judgment for unbelievers. Okay, he comes back once. You see that again, number five, there's continuity between 
Israel and the church. Number six, similarly to the Amel position, Old Testament prophecies of prosperity are to be taken figuratively, surely, but also literally as a pointing ahead to the visible prosperity of Christ's kingdom on the earth before Jesus comes, climaxing in the consummated glory of the eternal state, as well as the fullness of converted Israel grafted back into the people of God. There's an expectation that there will be global affect, including, as the scriptures say, Israel being grafted back in, believing Israel. Number seven, the preaching of the gospel will, over the long range, produce a period of peace and extraordinary righteousness as the church triumphs, discipling the nations through the Holy Spirit. Number eight, the release of Satan at the end of the age will bring apostasy from these blessed conditions prior to the physical return of Christ to reign. All right, so the best thing that I think we can do to even cement these principles is I want to show you some drawings. I'll do the best I can to talk briefly. You can keep looking at them through our discussion tonight. This first view, as I said, there's three hermeneutical views. The pre-mill one has kind of got two different versions of it. Uh, a pre-mill position where Jesus returns prior to the millennium. Historic pre-mill is kind of the, the more broad view. It's what, when I was at Trinity, this is what was taught most frequently. You have the church age we're in right now. Then you have the tribulation is going to be a great apostasy will begin. The Antichrist is going to reign during the tribulation. Then Christ will descend the first time, the first resurrection. He will rapture out the church at one level, and the millennium will start. And during that time, you will see many of the prophecies to Israel begin to be fulfilled during the millennium when Satan is bound. Then Satan will be loosed, as we saw in Revelation 20. Then will come the second returning judgment of Jesus. And we will see the, the battle of Gog and Magog. It will be the end of the age as we know it. And you will see judgment happen to the wicked. And you will see the righteous reign of the church reign eternally with Jesus. Okay, so that's what I would say. I'll, I'll be careful to say enough, but not too much. I would say that of the two millennial positions, this is the only one that I would find to have validity, generally speaking, in the scriptures. Okay, I'm not a premillennialist. Okay, just so you know. But there's more that can be pointed to in the Bible where a pre-mill position like that's described right here would hold water and would hold up. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but here's another timeline. There's only one major difference between this one and the one I just showed you. This is dispensational uh, premillennialism. See where the rapture is in this drawing is right is before the tribulation. Okay, this is the Left Behind series. All right? Um, the, the, the church is raptured out then everything gets awful. And then you see that after that seven years, the reign of the Antichrist leaning into Daniel 7 and the 70th week, um, there's, there's all sorts of things that happen in that time frame based on Old Testament prophecies and apocalyptic things taken literal. And you then see a very similar second half of this drawing where the millennium, Satan will be bound, Christ will reign, and he will convert those who are his, the 144,000. And you will then see judgment come when Jesus returns the second time, and then the eternal state for those who are his. All right. Now the drawings get even simpler. Amil, pretty, pretty basic, right? Um, and we had a discussion about this the other day, but the simplicity of, of two of the views that we're going to actually propose to you may hold a little bit more water, so to speak, biblically speaking. But you have the Amil timeline is simple. The present age is the millennium of Christ. We have the strong man is bound, as Jesus talked about in the Gospels. We have Satan being bound. Therefore, 
the reign of Christ can happen and the gospel will be able to penetrate the hearts of man. Christ will return once and you will see that he will save those who are his. He will judge the wicked. But notice that the, the drawing is very simple. It's just a parallel line. Because Amils would say that during this time, we don't expect righteousness to rampantly take over all cultures in the civic, cultural, you know, even familial realms. We expect the gospel will move forward at the same time as evil moves forward until Jesus returns. Now, here's the difference. See the post-mill timeline. The present age is the millennial reign of Christ, symbolically speaking. But over the course of the millennium, the world will become better. The gospel will advance. Gradual Christianization of the world will happen. One of the things uh, post-mill folks will point to is how many original disciples were there? Say 12. 12. There's, right? What's going on in the world right now? There, right? It has grown. An Amil person would push back against that and say, yeah, but what about the suffering and the persecution and all the ways in which we're told that we're to expect to be treated the way that we're treated doesn't always look like success. And so that's what we're going to dialogue tonight about. Before we do, I want to hit some of the texts that the different groups would point to. Please allow this to just maybe be for your future study, maybe for some of our discussions tonight. Um, I won't touch all these verses, but premillennial folks would point to 1 Thessalonians 4 as a dominant place where the rapture is presented to us dead saints will rise from their grave and all the living members of the church will be raptured up to meet christ first thessalonians 4 does say that we'll meet him in the clouds since i'm mentioning that here as a text that they would point to i will say that there are responses to that from the all-mill and the post-mill position one simple response just so you're aware is the, the verb to meet is almost every other place in scripture used where uh, a person you know the is it matthew 13 i believe where the the um uh uh, the, the, the bride, the bride, 24, thank you. They go out to meet the bridegroom. They meet him, same verb. And what do they do when they meet him? They don't go away with him. They escort him back to their home. And so there's, there's ways in which others will press against the first Thessalonians four interpretation of the church being raptured away. Um, but because of the seventh week of Daniel and the, the deep apocalyptic interpretation there, dispensational pre-mill folks will say, no, the church is raptured out before the very horrendous tribulation for seven years. During the time of tribulation, there'll be three and a half years of world peace under an antichrist, Daniel 7, Daniel 13, uh, Revelation 13, who will establish a worldwide following church, Revelation 17, followed by then three and a half years of great suffering at the end of this period, Christ will return, Matthew 24, Revelation 19. He will judge the world. He will bind Satan for a thousand years. And that's when the millennium starts. And that's when he will raise the Old Testament and the tribulation saints from the dead, Revelation 24. So the millennial reign of Christ will begin. And Christ will reign politically over the earth at that time from his capital in Jerusalem, Isaiah 2. There'll be no war. Animals will dwell in harmony. Those who come to believe in Christ during the 70th week of Daniel, including the 144,000 Jews, um, will survive, go on to populate the earth during the time. And at the end of that, Satan will be released. There'll be a colossal final rebellion against God. And we know Jesus wins and Satan's cast into the eternal lake. That's pre-mill. Amil, Amil would, and this is true of post-mill as well, would hold very clearly Peter's first sermon in Acts 2 when he says the last times are now. An Amil position will point to the many times in which Matthew chapter 3 as well, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
at the cross, Christ won the victory over Satan. Satan was then bound with the cross and resurrection of Jesus, and, and Jesus then ascended to reign at the throne of David forever, where he reigns right now. That means the millennial reign of Christ is now. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father. In the present age of the kingdom of Christ, what do we do? Well, many Amil folks will point to 2 Corinthians as a great place that says, we look to the things not that are seen, but things that are unseen. We're not looking as much for all the cultural evidences or the political evidences. We're looking at the hearts of sinners repenting and believing the gospel. It's an unseen reality, but we believe it will happen. 2 Corinthians. Some New Testament parable guidance. Um, I listened to a lot of debates over the last six weeks. I'm as confused by some of them as I may sound to you. Um, but I've enjoyed it. I listen to, uh, wherever I've had to drive, I'll put a debate on at one and a half speed. And it just sounds like they're shouting at each other. It's excellent. Um, Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds, very frequently pointed to by amillennialists to say, when Jesus returns, the field is going to be full of weeds and full of wheat. He's going to sift it. It's not just full of wheat. It's full of weeds and wheat. So we expect a parallel progression of evil and of righteousness. And then an amill person will point to the fact that Christ himself said that the Christian is going to be hated by all just like he was. So there's not a present hope of earthly exaltation. Rather, there's a longing for the fulfillment of the second stage of the millennial reign of Jesus, if you will, of the, the permanent reign, the coming of his kingdom. So suffering and persecution which are so frequently referenced in the scriptures are something that a non-millennialist will sink their teeth into to say, I'm expecting suffering, okay? New Testament promise and authority. Amils deeply believe the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. The emphasis for the Amil will generally be the disciple having their heart changed. Not so much the nations being converted as full of disciples, which you'll hear that in the post-mill position. All right, post-mill text. I want to say something personal about my own journey, and then we'll, we'll move forward. The millennial kingdom to the, uh, the post-mill position is, is simply the fulfillment of God's original promise to Abraham, right? All the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through what I'm going to do with you, Abraham. Your seed is going to be the, the seed through which all the nations of the earth are blessed. And, and, and Abraham, look at the sand, you can't number it. Look at the stars. You, you, you can't number them. So is going to be my reign on earth when all the nations are converted in some regards. That, that many people, right? This reign will come about through gradual conversion rather than the premillennialist cataclysmic Christological, you know, coming down. But it's going to happen through a gradual spread of the gospel. This incremental progress is presented all throughout Scripture. Ezekiel 47 is that vision of like the, the water just, just, it just keeps going, just keeps going. Prophetic psalmody is often pointed to by post-mill position folks. The psalms speak of the nations fearing the sun, salvation being known among the nations, the end of the earth fearing him. There's this earthly optimism all across the Psalter. We sing it a lot right now if you've been noticing. Earthly optimism is also visual in Isaiah 2. The nations will stream to the righteousness of God. Um, other prof prophetic vision, uh, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 is one of my favorites. Um, and I may as well tell you a little bit of my journey now. Um, well, I'll get back to it. I'll come back to Isaiah 65. Uh, 
New Testament parallel vision, Matthew 13, the mustard seed is going to start small. But what is produced in the kingdom of God is going to be massive beyond what could be expected, right? Uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Expect the church to see cultural impact is what the postman position holds. All the enemies are under the feet of Jesus until he, he, he crushes his enemies. And then the New Testament promise and authority of the Great Commission there. The Great Commission is not just that hearts will be turned by the power of the Holy Spirit to repent of sin and believe in the gospel, but disciple the nations. All authority has been given to me and I send you. So a little bit of my own personal thoughts and then I'm going to invite to the next stage because we will slow down a lot. I grew up in, a, in more of a premillennial position. I don't think I had a very developed eschatology, but I certainly was in a pre-mill construct in my church background. Went to TED's, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Evangelical Free. Uh, I'm a very proud graduate of TED's. It's an excellent institution. Um, and one of the things I was required to do in all my classes, because it was so broadly evangelical, is I had to be studying every major position, whether it's, if, so if it's about the sovereignty of God, what's the Arminian position? What's open theism? What's the reform position? And that was what, that was my seminary education. Super helpful. I, I, didn't, I didn't go to a, a dogmatic place that said, this is what we believe. Now, most seminaries don't. I know Reformed Theological Seminary is not doing that, but Trinity was excessively broad in saying pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill. Now, back at that time, early 2000s, the post-mill wasn't thought well highly of at TED's. Didn't really have much of a seat at the table. What was, what was a place where most of the Reformed folks found a little bit of an understanding was in the ah-mill position because of the continuity of Israel and the church. And so I left Trinity, and for 20 years, I've said, I'm, I'm pretty much a super optimistic amillennial. I really do believe that there's suffering and persecution. I don't know if I expect wholesale cultural transformation in any of the places I serve. I kind of act like I do in all the things I go into out in the community, but my theological view from Scripture was probably more, eh, I kind of expect a parallel progression of evil and righteousness. But I trust that God can penetrate the heart of even the hardest hardest individual that I'll ever meet, and he, but by the grace of God, he's penetrated my heart. So I, I was mostly Amel. And when I first said to AJ, let's do an eschatology discussion, I was concerned because a lot of my post-mill friends seemed to be the most angry people of all, with all the cultural problems going on around us. America's falling apart, and I was like, hey, the Amel position is kind of sweet. We're not expecting all that stuff to happen. And I believe that the gospel is more, hearts are more ripe now than ever to receive the gospel. But then I've spent the last two months spending more time studying scripture, and I'm looking at a lot of the passages that I used to point to and read one way and going, time out. This post-mill position seems to really be pointing to scriptures that I have, I have put in one category as describing the new heavens and the new earth, when really some of these scriptures are actually describing Life before Jesus returns. For example, Isaiah 65. The lion will lay down with the lamb. I've always interpreted that as the new heavens and the new earth when everything is made right. But you know what Isaiah 65 will also describe? It says that things are going to progress to the point in the kingdom of God that when a person dies at 100 years old, they're called an infant. What doesn't happen eternally? Death. Death. So how can you have a prophetic vision that says someone's still going to die and it'd be only describing eternity. At a bare minimum, it caused me to say, well, is that just figurative then, or is it literal? How does it fit? And so I'm on a journey right now in the middle of this. 
And when I first called Mark and said, Mark, let's do a success discussion, I thought maybe we could do a little bit of a panel discussion, not a debate, because you're smarter than I am. And now we're not going to do it that way. What we're going to do is we're going to share a discussion about the implications of these views. But I will tell you, I'm leaning, I lean more toward a post-mill persuasion right now, as far as just understanding a lot of the text that I've been studying. But I, I hold strongly to the Amil's emphasis of the gospel being about the change that God does in the heart of a sinner. And all the times the scriptures tell me to expect persecution and suffering, I still don't live with a radically far-off expectation of cultural transformation all around me. I kind of do expect that those who put hope in the things that are false will <coughs> fall apart right before our eyes. And that sits easier for me with an omnial persuasion, if that makes sense. So I have no problem inviting you all into my wrestling, but I want to bring Mark up here and AJ up here that we can broaden the discussion all the more. I think what I'm trying to say to you is we should always all be reforming by God's word. I just didn't expect over the last two months to start reading again and have my own views be like, oh, what do I believe? I rejected that wholesale a long time ago, but there's some merit in these ways. I thought this was kind of just for the far end reform folks, but I see some of the scriptures that they're pointing to and they make a lot of sense. I thought that was a negative angry view. It's full of hope when it's actual biblical. It's full of immense hope. It shouldn't have any anger attached to it at all. So I'm somewhere on the journey with you. And I think we may be at some level, all of us, but let's come up and let's move on to the next phase. Um, so I'm not mic'd for you all. So I'm going to speak loud, but I'm mic'd for them. But um, what we'll do now is, uh, like I said, we'll just, I'm going to ask these, these brothers some questions and we'll get to hear them dialogue and think through these things. Um, and then after that, we'll transition to the Q&A uh, and get some questions from, from you all. Um, but Jim, let me just start out with you since you've been doing the talking. Uh, we'll keep it with you for now. I think when it comes to end times, when it comes to eschatology, some people, and I've been in conversations where you, you could be talking about anything and all of a sudden they bring up end times because that's related to whatever you're talking about. It's like any conversation goes there. They're obsessed with it, perhaps. Whereas others, it seems at times... Uh, or other folks just don't care at all about the end time. So how, I mean, how should we weigh this? Kind of as, as we think about this together. Um, everybody has a view and they live in light of it. And so even the one who says, I'd rather not talk about it. They don't want to talk about something they have. They have a view that is going to have present implications in what they think about what happens tomorrow. Um, it is related usually also to a grid of how we interpret and study God's word. And so the other extreme, though, is someone who's so fixated on it. You know, Jesus himself warned about those who were saying, ah, I know the exact time it's going to be. He said, no, no, no. In fact, if you understand it all, all these things happening mean the end is not yet. So we have to have a, a, a humble grid of it. That's what Jesus, is, I think, was saying there. And we need to not be so casual to think that um, I'm okay without it. If we're a growing disciple of Christ, we should be anticipating what he says we should be, A, experiencing now, but also waiting on. So um, I think there's a corrective to both sides in a healthy dialogue about it. Yeah. Um, well, Mark, um, let me ask you two questions at the same time here. One is, uh, Jim started to get into it just as he was talking about the different views, but can you touch on... Um, you know, as, as we here at Christ Community subscribe to the Westminster Confession 
and even just thinking of kind of historical reform theology, which views are confessional? And then um, beyond that, could you touch on um, what are caricatures of different views um, that may or may not be real and, and kind of how, how should we navigate thinking okay. through characters? Okay. First of all, just to clarify why I'm here, AJ put a sign on the door that says, if there's a post meal anywhere in Johnson City, uh, we'll feed you pizza and cupcake if you show up. <laughs> So, and we got the best. I one, saw the so. sign, and so here I am. So, uh, <laughs> so certainly, as I came into, um, I was raised Methodist, um, family, you know, did go to church, but my slate was basically pretty clean, or empty in terms of distinctives about what I did believe. And then the late '70s, um, I worked down in, as a co-op student, forest fire and logging down the, in the um, Smoky Mountains, and everyone there was pre-meal dispensational, Baptist, and. Um, I knew I, I knew I wasn't smart enough to understand that. Um, <laughs> just, just look at the chart. So I knew that um, I didn't consider myself brilliant, but I didn't, didn't consider myself too, um, you know, real slow. So, um, but I knew that God, um, we, we don't know all his thoughts, but I know that he's not, a, he's not, he's not complicated around, around the hope of the gospel. And so I knew early in the late 70s that I was not going to be a dispensational free meal. Uh, and then in the 80s, I became a Reformed Baptist and then moved into covenantal Presbyterianism. So as I moved into a confessional type church, uh, if you look at the confession in the three main positions of pre-meal, post, and R, uh, typically we would say they're all confessional. They're what we would call somewhat secondary doctrine where we can live with each other and be in peace with, with one another and yet disagree. The pre-mill dispensational, I believe, is, is not confessional because it's so dispensational. It just divides the scripture and the confession is built around the covenantal view of the scriptures. So pre-mill dispensational does not get you disciplined in the Presbyterian church, uh, but typically you'd be hard pressed to probably find many pre-mill dispensationalists uh, in, the, um, in the covenant, covenant world. Um, you will find, um, for example, in, in the three that are most dominant, if you look at history, you'll find like Charles Spurgeon was probably a pre, but yet his sermon sounded awful post, very, very post. Uh, if you look at the um, um, 1800s, uh, you find the Hodges, the Warfields, um, most of your most popular reformers were post-mill. Um, certainly, there was something that happened in the 20th century that made post-mill look a little bit ridiculous. And that was world wars and the rise of murders all around, you know, millions and millions of people being, being killed by, by worldviews and by, around political views. So that's why in the late 20th century into the early 21st century, it became somewhat hard to uh, find a post mill because the 20th century wiped out optimism in, uh, in human history. Um, so that's kind of just a big picture in terms of as a confessional, church. Uh, you can fall anywhere in the pre-mill, post, or R camp, and uh, the session won't come chasing you for church discipline. Okay, it's all, all confessional. Uh, what, what's, what stands out is maybe um, uh, traps we could fall into. Post-mill can easily be, be seen as prosperity and wealth gospel somewhat. Uh, it can be um, accused of, well, where's this place for suffering? And as Jim was talking about how he sometimes still clings to that awe because of that. I agree with everything he said. Um, 
as a post-meal, because I believe post-meal does deny suffering. It just sees the world on an incline, but up and down. So yeah, you have 100 years of world wars and, and hundred, hundreds of millions of people killed by political views, but yet it's, it's moving. So while our meal is, is somewhat on an incline with good times and, and bad times and suffering. Uh, so post-meal can be seen though as completely optimistic with um, no persecution, no suffering, and even be linked to tied to technology, could be linked to um, you know, prosperity, when ultimately the R and the post are gonna still find their foundation on, if there's, opti if there's, if there's a reason for optimism, it's only because the gospel is working in the hearts of men and women and children. Uh, the R can, um, the R, the R mills can find a, a convenient place <clears throat> of, of not, um, of not dealing with some covenantal passages that are there in terms of the, what do you do with the optimistic verses of the Old Testament and, and the new, and the R will lean more towards this world as Christ says will bring a lot of suffering. So they can kind of get stuck there sometimes and, and then not be as proactive because remember eschatology is not just, just a theological position. It is a philosophy of how we approach life and our eschatology as imperfect as, it, as each of us may be in it, will determine how we wake up, how we read the newspaper, and how we approach how we approach life. Uh, and then the pre-meals, the pre-meals, um, uh, because it's close, I believe pre-meal dispensationalism basically gave up the 20th century to the enemy because we basically saw that we live on the Titanic and we're not gonna polish the brass on the Titanic. And so pre-meal dispensationalism slash a little bit of pre-meal basically gave the culture back that we used to own. You know, things like Hollywood movies used to all go through a Christian committee back in the 1950s. But we don't care about movies, you know, we're, we're leaving this place. So I definitely would be very, very um, negative around pre-mill dispensationalism because I think it walked away from the culture. Uh, and I'll Does that make that. sense? We've talked about it a lot last yeah. Basically, you're saying that the dispensational pre-mill view, which, you know, Moody and all those different, yeah. that was a very, just think of history and the timing of that yeah. becoming a dominant view. Yes. Um, it aligned with a lot of the decreasing impact in culture, but the view says what everything's going, the ship's going down. And by the way, I'm going to be, I'm going to be gone before it gets real bad because of the rapture. And so what Mark, you're, you're, and we've talked a lot more than yeah. tonight will allow the yeah. time, but that that's come out later. Yeah. Yeah. That's but that's, yeah. yeah. Well, um, Lots of what you touched on we'll get to, and even um, some of the questions here in a moment, we'll get into how, how does our eschatology impact day to day, which is something you referenced. But um, before getting to that, just, just kind of personally for, for both of you, and Jim, you touched on this a little bit already. What, you know, it, it just a couple of specific passages or even themes in scripture have been most helpful for you, just personally, as you think about all of this stuff. Can we go first this time? Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned quickly early, it was it was my journey into into the covenant view. So certainly seeing the Bible as one whole, and so basically, if you look at Abraham, the promises to Abraham, of wow, you know that's that's a the sand of the seashore. That's a lot of people, and the stars and the sky. That's a lot of people that he promised, and then you get into the passages of just the the um, expansive nature of the promises of God, just expanding success of of his word. 
And then we, then we get to Christ, and he comes, and from Genesis 3, he crushes the head of the serpent. And then Revelation 20, okay, Satan's bound. And then Christ is on the throne. So if Christ is on the throne, <clears throat> and he doesn't deliver the kingdom until he destroys all his enemies, well, then what does it look like? Or what, what's our experience in history with if Christ is on the throne, destroying his enemies and making them footstools? So those kind of three, you know, the Old Testament optimism or expansion, then Christ becoming, <clears throat> sitting on the throne, the right, right hand of God, and promised to have the nations, and he reigns and, and hands the kingdom to God, the Father only when he destroys his enemies. And the fact that Satan, of course, is very, very powerful <clears throat> in terms of wanting to destroy us as individual Christians, but he has been bound in terms of no longer being able to deceive. So kind of those three chunks uh, is what sort of took me a lot of interest towards the post-mill position. Thank you. Um, I've already said what I, my, my recent, like rehearsing some of the prophecies that I've thought of as being about the new heavens and new earth and realizing maybe they're a description of the earthly reign that we're in now and the trajectory. So that's been more recent. But I will go back to when I really leaned into covenantal reform theology, and it was so grace-centered. It say it, it, I know I was converted well before then, but grace was just powerful. And so I think the text in Revelation 20, where the strong man is bound um, and cannot bind the heart of a believer, I, I just needed that at a point in my life. I'm a very performance, external-focused individual, which is probably why I still have, I shudder a little bit at too much excess uh, expectation of external evidences, because I don't know external evidences that I've seen in my life of the church are often as pure as the internal transformation of their heart and um, <clears throat> just struggles of mine. Um, so I would just say that Jesus saying that the strong man is bound and that he will have his way with his kingdom growing on earth is one of the most encouraging things that could ever be even conceived of. The enemy can't bind the children of God, can't bind the gospel of God. And so that's the hopeful side on a more sober side of just the expectation, sort of the omelette, what I've really leaned into for the last 20 years is, the, again, the, the weeds and the, and the wheat growing along. There are, there's wickedness in the world. Uh, even being a pastor, there are people in the church that might be wolves among sheep. There's, I mean, there's all these scripture places saying, beware. And so I think that that's another thing that I've held too dearly over the course of time of, of who am I to think that suffering isn't going to inflict my family or me personally in radical ways. And if it does, I probably linked a lot of that to eschatology. Now, I will say I'm very aware the postman position doesn't preclude that at all. Um, it's still, in fact, it's a nice hope-filled long interpretation of all things to say that in the midst of your suffering, what do you think is really, is everything really going to pot just because you're finally experiencing suffering at a level you've never felt it before? No, the trajectory's not not changed. So again, I, I'll show a little bit of my dance between the two positions right now, but those two persuasions, uh, a super optimistic all-mill or a slightly pessimistic post-mill, there's a lot of texts of scripture that are so comforting to a believer in the world in which we live right now. Um, thinking more specifically about like the, the millennium is, is the reign of Christ, right? It's the millennial reign. Um, it has to do with the kingdom. Um, you know, for, for both the awe and the post position, we see where we're at right now as that millennial reign. How does the kingdom advance? What does the, the advance of the kingdom look like? You know, even just as we think about our kind of day-to-day -day lives or our church or, or kind of our times, like 
how does the kingdom go forward or what does that look like? How do we see that? We, I'm going to let Mark do most of the answering this, but I will just say, if I answer Acts 2, repent and believe the gospel, and we see the New Testament, and Lord added thousands to their number who are being saved, I think sometimes an omnial person stops there and says, see, that's the progress. And as we talked, Mark, you, you've said it many times this last couple of weeks. Yeah, but what about capturing the culture for Christ? Not just Christ capturing my heart. But then through the hearts of captured believers, he captures the culture. And so I'll let you say more what the kingdom looks yeah, like. Yeah, I think, I think um, I'd be tremendously off base to say it was anything but the gospel. I mean, it's simply the gospel in the hearts of people that, that is the true progress of, of the kingdom. But yet we have the New Testament passages around, you know, take every thought captive. And um, just simply, I think as... It, as I think about the deacons and or any type of ministry that we have, regardless of our eschatology, I think we're called to, to live as post-mills. We're called to go out and, and impact our families, our schools, our work, in terms of optimistically bringing them under Christ and, and his gospel and the influence of his gospel. And the gospel changes people and it changes schools, it changes works and it changes families. And so I think basically the gospel makes the initial change. And then I think we're called to go out and capture the culture and capture every thought that's out there. And as Abraham Kuyper said, every square inch of the earth belongs to him. And so we capture that in our day-to-day philosophy. We seek to capture within the world that he's given us to live in. That's good. And, you know, Mark, one of the things you said in our discussion, um, you referenced uh, the larger catechism 191 which yeah. talks about uh, the lord's prayer and even just the, when we pray your kingdom come and that's what you just said just made me think of that is yeah. as we think about the fact that christ is reigning and, and the victory is his like we should be expecting and moving towards the, the coming yeah. of his kingdom yeah the, yeah on the language of that larger catechism question i'm not going to sit and read it to you but it certainly has the flavor of a post meal in terms of we pray for his kingdom. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is, is here and it's also, also to come, but the Christ is reigning. And so we're praying for that uh, kingdom come. Uh, certainly from a post meal perspective, uh, I look at it in terms of we are actively to be involved in, in Christ influencing every institution and every aspect of life that we can step into. So getting more kind of day-to-day for us, as we think about the millennial views or the reign of Christ, how does this affect, you know, how we work or how we relate to family or how we live in our neighborhood or just whatever we're doing on a week-to-week basis? How does all of this kind of stuff that may be confusing on one level, um, how does it impact us day-to-day? I mean, we, ha- we have to link the sovereignty of God to the expectation that history is going to take the, the, the trajectory that the scriptures say it's going to take. That means he's sovereign over the long story of his kingdom and his reign. He's also then sovereign over the very places that he puts each of us. And um, I, I think that, that it's a sober reality how infrequently we discuss our vocations and our, and our being the disciples of Jesus that we are. Where has God placed you? I think we try to touch it. I'm trying to touch it frequently in preaching if I can. There's this absolute confidence of God's sovereignty over all of history and his sovereignty of where he places his servants to be agents of his kingdom where he puts them. Um, 
It's discouraging though. It's discouraging to say, well, I'm the only person in my workplace or I'm the only one on my street. Or it's discouraging when you're out in a volunteer position like coaching a sport and you see just the way parents talk to their children and the way culture seems to be, it's discouraging. So I think the way that impacts what we do in our vocational places or our avocational places is we should have a confident view of what the scriptures teach. And I'll, it, it, and I'll just go with the two views that I would say I'm wrestling with. And I'm real confident of the gospel changing the hearts of people that I'm spending my every day with. He can do that. Or a bigger hope than that, that if, if God's going to use me here to influence them and he changes their heart, then he's going to use them to influence, and we can see how it, it grows. So um, it should be a sobering yet hopeful um, very intentional existence for a person who has an eschatological framework about all that they do in their present moment. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we're called, we're called to take the gospel out. No, we have no control of the gospel. There's nothing we do that changes a person's heart, but yet we don't, we're not hyper-Calvinists and you just sit around and say, well, God will change the heart. No, he's called us to go out and preach the gospel. No, we have nothing to do with this, with this impact. Likewise, he doesn't call us to wake up every morning and determine our eschatology by the headlines in the newspaper or the CNN report. Um, I think when post meals get aggravated, they've been listening to CNN too long. <laughs> and they get mad. They get mad. Because, why? Because they've gone back to reading the headlines to determine their view of history. Uh, so I think basically he's called us to take the gospel out, and we have no control of his impact. And then I, he's called us to go have an impact in the world around us. And yet history is his. What, you know, we've all heard it's, it's his story, and it's going to be his story. And he's king. So we just have to have, we have faith around, I'm called to my world, and he'll take care of the rest. And yes, uh, as a post mill, I see that being the fact that it, it'll progress. You know, gates don't move. The gospel, the gates, the, the, the gates don't move. So the, the gospel, you know, will not be, will not be kept from influencing the world, world around it, however we want to define that. So we're just faithful to that calling without necessarily believing or understanding every aspect of what um, success of the gospel looks like in history. Based on what Mark was, it just made me think of the thought, I want you to keep in your mind the three major views while that question was like, what do we do in our day to day? And I'll make it kind of a caricature, but a pre-mill position that is just so thoroughly pre-mill may say in the moment, as long as I'm trying to obey God in my heart, Jesus is going to come back. And the rest of it is not that important in some regards because, because I'm just anticipating him showing up. Okay. An Amil position can often just not believe the, prog the progress is going to be as great as it's going to be. So we run the risk of just saying, well, as long as, as, long as I'm repenting of my sins and my family's repenting of my sins, that is the kingdom. Well, and a postman can be dangerous, though, at times. It can be a dangerous view that says, my definition of progress is so earthy, it's so civic, it's so political, that if you talk to a person who's so, so far that direction in the realm of progress, you don't even hear them talk about the transformation of the, of the gospel changing a heart. And we can't go there either. So the day-to-day -day implications are actually pretty heavy of if I'm kind of apathetic, or I'm just too heart-centered and just too navel-gazing, or I'm or potentially too far out there and not considering how the gospel changes hearts. It, it... Yeah, I think one thing I'd, I'd add to that, and um, as Jim went through Peter, it just reminded us that we are all in exiles. We're exiles going through, through this world. Um, during that time, I also was recalled back to Jeremiah 29, 
which I think is a great balance in terms of how it should impact our life, yet we're exiles. So God, you know, the, the God's people are in Bab Babylon, and he says, okay, you're, you're, exile, you're in exile, but I want you to build your houses. I want you to choose your wives. I want you to have children. I want you to plant the gardens. And I want you to care about the city you live in because the welfare of the city is tied to your welfare. So even in exile, he, you know, in a sense, you know, I don't ever walk away from the fact that our, our home is not here. Um, we are in exile, but yet God is also kind of a meat and potatoes soil person, a being. He wants us to, he wants us to grab a hold of the dirt. He wants us, to, he loves meat and potatoes. Our, our life here is not just here as some abstract thing we walk through. It's a part of his overall kingdom. And so we can realistically um, care for our land and care for the prosperity of our land and the welfare of our land and pray for that even while in exile. So Jeremiah 29 kind of balances, I think, an all mill, what all mill sees is trying to emphasize, but yet a post mill says, I need to impact this world even though I'm in exile. I think it's super, super helpful um, yeah. to keep both of those in view, uh, like you're saying, and not right. just think it's all great and everything right. is wonderful and it's you know perfect or uh, not, not having really a lot of hope. Uh, right. could be. Um, Jim, something, well, I think both of you guys, um, sitting here with you now, but also sitting with you all, you know, the couple times we've sat before this, um, you both are just exuding hope and confidence as you think about the fact that Jesus is on his throne and what you're expecting him to do, uh, now. And <coughs> I think a lot of time, well, for a lot of people I've talked to, um, when we think about end times, it's not confidence and hope that is the result of that. It's fear. Or confusion, perhaps. Why is it that so often we, we go to fear when we think of end times rather than it, it bringing about this confident hope that we have, that you, that you guys have? Well, I think a dominant eschatological view of the last century was one of it's going to get so darn bad, you better hope you get out of this place really quick because it's going to hell in a handbasket. And so I think if you are raised in a, a century of that, that basically withdrew Christian influence from so many of our institutions, it's kind of like, well, how bad is it going to get before I'm raptured? So I think it can be kind of a dread in terms of yeah, everything we read in the headlines is really going to be true. And it's really got, it's, it's really the history we live. And so, gosh, am I going to make it to the rapture? Um, am I going to make it to, the, you know, to that time where Christ you know, reigns here on earth. So I think the dominant view of, you know, the um, great lake planet earth, the dominant view of, of those things, I think have ingrained even those who don't believe it in terms of, wow, this place is really going to hell in a handbasket. And I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of that. The core message of the gospel is the penal substitutionary atonement of the cross. I mean, that the wrath of God has been spent on his son for those who are his. Therefore, we anticipate not more wrath from him because Jesus didn't take care of all of it. I'm aware that I'm a sinner wrestling in a sinful world, but my expectation of where it all leads, if I believe in the cross as being sufficient, can only be hopeful. Um. This is probably the first, maybe the last five years at least, because it's not just while here in Johnson City, but I'm not tired in ministry. Um, 
Certainly not perfect. There's a lot of issues that could be made better, but I'm not tired. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's either true or it's not. He's either going to reign or he's not reigning. And so the implication of where I think it will go is directly tied to the implication of what has already happened on the cross. They don't, they're not separate. And you can't talk about this without having confidence in that. If you have confidence in that, then what are you expecting? And so I, yeah, I hope the, I hope the hope continues as a trajectory of my life and all of our lives, but what alternative is there unless we've had sort of an eschatological kidnap hap, kidnapping happen and we've started to believe things that aren't consistent with the full rescue that's happened for us in the cross, you know? Um, but that would mean that I'm bound until the day I'm finally released. That's not the way the scripture teaches. The one who's bound is Satan. <clears throat> and it grieves me to see so many Christians that seem so bound and can't wait for the, the day of their release. No, there's no slavery that we live in. There's no ownership of us by the enemy. We've been set free. We still wrestle with sin. We'll know in full the freedom that we anticipate, but the cross has implications eternally. Therefore, I don't think there's any other posture we should have but hope. One of the benefits, I think, for me, just uh, in talking with you guys about this over the last two months, is I've been thinking about the reign of Christ more specifically during that time. And I think just being more mindful <coughs> of the fact that he is reigning has, has helped bring about some of that hope and confidence for me. Yeah, um, you know, the, the cross is the, um, the change in history. And so why do those who hate Christ, what's one of the key things they want to do? Um, they want to change the calendar. In the, you know, the French Revolution, let's change the calendar. Why? Because we know that event changes the world. So if we can erase it, then by getting a different calendar and getting us off that, then we can begin to forget about the reign of Christ. So Christ came and the, all of history will be different. All of this history, the future will be different, but this history is about him working. And I think that's why those who hate him would very much like to erase that as a, the significant turning point in history when Satan is bound and his head is crushed. And so there's going to be a lot of impact in the world for, you know, for a long time. All right, so just, just a few more questions, uh, and then we'll, we'll open it up for Q&A. Uh, but Jim, thinking about you specifically as, as one who preaches week in and week out, how does this impact your view of, of, of your preaching? And then Mark, you can answer after Jim. How does this, thinking about all this, impact how you hear preaching, how you receive preaching week by week? To be critical first and just always be asking for God to, to, make, to make the word more effective. Um, spending the time necessary to show the applicational um, impact of the truth of the gospel is something that a preacher, I need to work harder at because the necessary scope most of us have is just our own self. And so if my view is the gospel changes hearts, so repent and believe the gospel, then we can just feel really good about being righteous in God's sight and that's the end of it. But if we have a millennial grid by which we think through what is it all for, then what does it mean as a preaching pastor to say, because the gospel is true, because we see it in this text, we see, we see it applied in this text, what does it mean to go and be the disciple where he sent you among the nations? And so to seek to be specific about what that cultural impact can be, to not try to be so specific, however, that fringe definitions of kingdom fruit become a dominant theme in the pulpit, 
In every church I've pastored, I've had people that say they want me to be more political. Every single church. You need to preach more, especially when someone's being elected. It's election season. Say more about the election. Say more about the election. You need to do more about this, more about that. And I, I tend not to. For me, the wrestling match is I still need to do more of saying, yeah, but as it's true, it will change the culture around <clears throat> us and our affections toward the people whom God's positioned us to serve. So doing more of that, but also never thinking that that's the goal of preaching. That's the Spirit's job to do. My job is to present Christ and Him crucified and, and the power by which we're saved. So I got to do both. And if you do one at the exclusion of the other, you haven't preached the whole gospel. But I'll take Jim where he's leaning now in his preaching um, without necessarily every application, the culture, because I can have all the best theology books on my shelf and all the best, I can have the best worked out eschatology. And um, while Satan cannot deceive the nations, he can certainly deceive me with my great theology. So I need to preach the word uh, to protect my heart so I can be faithful to him personally and pursue holiness and then have some chance from there to influence the culture. What's been an easy place for me to go of many great men that I've sat under uh, has been that eschatology and theology can destroy my soul, but the preached word uh, gives, gives it life and keeps it fresh. That's good. Um, I don't want to ask any more of my questions specifically. I just want to give you all a chance. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted me to, or is there just anything else that you want to share um, on, on anything related to this topic? So the Bible ends with come Lord Jesus come, right? I don't tell you all this. That's a prayer of mine all the time. Um, but if it's not connected to the grid of the great commission being effective, then it's like, it's like, it's not waving the white towel, but it's like, come on, just come, like, just end it all. I think I'd love to say, you know, he's come, right? I want to reinterpret what that means. He's already come. <clears throat> his kingdom's come. It's now. So I think a prayer that might be more biblical for my heart is, Lord, show us the progress. Show us the progress, like right now. Like, I want to see the progress. Uh, it's the same prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come, because when he comes, what does he do? He changes lives. He changes families. And man, is there anything sweeter than when you see external evidences of internal gospel transformation? I mean, think about your own home, your own family. We've seen progress. We've seen external evidences of internal change that we didn't, we did not create ourselves. We never had the power to do it. And it's in the beauty of the external evidence of it that the power of the internal transformation is believed all the more. And so that's kind of where I'm at with this whole study right now is just come Lord Jesus come means Show us the progress, please. Give me eyes to see, because you are at work. And if you choose to show us an abundant amount of progress amidst this very difficult cultural time, help us not be surprised, because you told us. But if we suffer and it looks awful, help me not be surprised. You told me that would be a part of the progress. So. Yeah, I think... Um... I think it's important for us to remember that um, while some passages of scripture do call us to look for Christ to come right now, and he can certainly come right now. And I think we live and pursue holiness knowing any time we could face the Lord, and he's called us to that. I think what the church to me has taught me in history as I read history and look at the church is the church 
in the gospel and the scriptures call us to a long-term view. So, you know, we, we baptize our children and we come to our grandchildren's baptism because we see the hope of the future there. And civilization in the Christian church was built on a long-term view of God working in his history. I mean, they built cathedrals, right? So the, the, the people who started the cathedral you know, didn't live 300 years to see it. So why did they build cathedrals? Well, that was tied to the view of we're here. We're here to have an impact on this earth as long as God gives it to us. So I think as individual Christians looking at our families and our world and our institution, I think we look at it in terms of God can come anytime and it is his, it's his history. He's called us to be faithful throughout, throughout the generations we can influence and think long-term about how we can help help play a role in that the kingdom impacting the world. So we have a long-term viewpoint. Um, and when we go to remodel churches and think about, we think about, we're going to be here. We could be here for a long, long time. And so we, we think that way in terms of the Christ influence of the culture, you know, until he's, until he says he's done and he's destroyed his enemies. So just kind of a long-term view. And we get up in the morning, we think long-term he's working because I can guarantee you the enemy, those who hate us, have a very, very long-term view. And will take 100 years or more to take over institutions and the world as we kind of walk away from them. So we're called not to walk away from the things that, that we can influence for Christ. That's good. Well, thank you guys both for-, for It's a good thing our, our new culture is just very long-term in its thinking. Just kidding. Uh, well, let's have some Q&A time now, um, and if, if you have a question, you can just kind of raise your hand, and then uh, one of us will repeat the question, yeah. just so our, our Zoom friends can hear as well. So, Goliath, I saw you. Yeah, I mean, I just, without caricature, oh yeah, thank you. The question is, I don't know if I can summarize that. Um, essentially, Goliath is asking for the historic pre-mill position. There, can you hold that even the covenantal view of the church in Israel as, one, as, as the continuation inside that, inside that eschatological view is kind of the question you're asking. Gotcha. Yeah, so, and I can answer the question as I, I try to answer. There are different views inside a historic pre-mill as far, like I would say most historic pre-mill folks that I studied under at TEDS, they would have held to the church as a continuation of Israel. Okay, it's the dispensational premillennial pre view that has such a strong divide between the church and Israel. But the historic pre-mill position 
will, I think, tend more toward being open to that covenant understanding of the people of God, but still looking for more literal fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that were for Israel. We'll still be willing to say that some of them are far more literal in their application to the people of Israel than just broadly, figuratively to the church as the new Israel. So um, I know that I didn't unpack that in any of the things I was saying, but I don't think that in a historic premium position that to hold that continuation of Israel to the church would be thought of by all as inconsistent necessarily. Totally inconsistent with dispensational. Oh, So the question was, how does Amil and Postmill explain Romans 11? You mean that where the Jews are engrafted? Yeah, yeah basically, um, I'll, uh, I don't know if Amil distinctly speaks to it. Postmill will say, so both, both pre-mill and post says you got to do something with Israel because of all the promises that are continued in the church, but yet God's faithfulness to the Israelites in Romans 11. So post-mill does say there is an engraft. There, you will see one thing that will tell you, you know, that, that history is working towards the post-mill view. You will see evangelistic responses, you know, in, you know, in, in Israel. Israel will be regrafted back in and has only been held back for the church to expand. So there is a place to where we should see a lot of conversions. And that's why you had a lot of the Old Testament, a lot of the, uh, the older missionaries, basically with the view of going to convert the Jews, thinking they could move history by converting the Jews. Let's convert the Jews. That means the end's coming versus, no, we're just faithful in the gospel. But the engrafting of it, you have to do something with Israel. And pre-mill and post distinctly try to figure out a place for Israel. Yeah, both. I'll let you can amplify if you want. Oh, how, so the question is, how will, how does an amill or post mill position handle that part of Revelation twenty, which says that at the end of uh, the millennial time time frame, that the uh, Satan is released from being bound and will deceive the nations. Um, both would hold that position as as there will be as is written. Yeah, it will be a time at which toward the end of the millennial reign as we know it right now, the church age there will be increasing volume of, of persecution, of tribulation, because the, he's been unbound. But it'll be only for a short season. And so I think even in the tenets I was reading earlier, the post-mill uh, position will, would probably even more strongly than the omnial position say, amidst all the blessings and the progress, there still will be a season in which the unbound enemy of God yeah. has his way. So, so wouldn't try to explain it away with, would say that that will happen. Ben? Um, how the, does a post mill, uh, from a post mill perspective, um, do you see any either um, example or imperative, imperative in the New Testament to the, to the church um, or even to the community of Christ? So for the post mill, 
What are examples or commands in the New Testament that speak to cultural transformation and institutional transformation and whatnot? Yeah, I would lean to disciple the nations. I would lean to take every thought captive. Um, I would lean towards um, Christ destroying his enemies and making them his footstool. So, you know, I'm not, so I, I would, so what else does that apply to if we're taking every thought captive, discipling the nations? Well, changing something about those nations. And so that has to be the world they live in. So do I see the word culture? No. Do I see that we're called to impact that around us? That's where I would get that, that mindset from. I don't have any other scriptures that, um, that come to mind, Ben. Um, I think some of it would be definition of the Great Commission, for example, disciples among the nations. Um, does that just mean disciples from every nation? Does that mean disciples who are discipling the people in their community, which then transforms that community and nation? So I think part of it is the limits that we either impose or don't impose on some of the descriptions that New Testament will give to us. I mean, you know, in the early church, I mean, Paul and them, Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't preaching in the text, go save the babies who've been thrown on the street to be aborted, but Christians were going out saving the babies. So I think they saw an application of, you know, we're called to, to do something. So I think, you know, a specific, you know, Paul was certainly, you know, focused on the preaching of the gospel. And I think um, the application of that, I think we saw in early church history of those that, that um, they weren't seeking to overcome Rome through force and through military, but simply being faithful to God and changing the world around them. And, I know one thing you mentioned in our discussions was even being salt. That's a great application. I saw Jason behind Ben, but let me say one more thing, Ben. Um, I, I do feel like one of the ways I've, from an omnial persuasion, kind of pushed against maybe a post-mill thought is you don't see Peter or Paul have a ton of consternation right. about the political distress that may have been happening under Caesar or whatever. You don't see them direct their attention in the letters they write to the churches to say, now here's the affect you should have. This is, when I go to Rome, this is the affect I want to have on Caesar. You just don't see that? Now, yeah, so, they weren't upset because they were post. Right, so they were, I, they weren't upset because they were post. You hear that? They were hope-filled post. So, so I've used that to push away from post a little bit. Like, I don't see where it says that that's the mandate the apostles would give. However, the fact that they weren't in a wad about it, in some regards, would it's, it's imply just, that they had a hope-filled understanding of what's going to happen when the gospel changes hearts. So. Slavery, slavery, what, to Onesimus? Yeah. Well, and so I would say the book of Philemon is an example that you just brought up because of slavery, an example of an institution and, and the instruction of the scriptures to have that be transformed. Jason.
So I'll try to summarize the question and let you answer. I mean, it's so easy of a question. I'm just going to let you answer. <laughs> I do have a thought on it, but I'll let you answer first. Uh, as an amil, Jason's asking, what of Christ's teaching or the apostles' teaching indicates that we as believers should aim for institutional change and transformation and, and whatnot? I think that's what you're getting at. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that um, it's easy for us to put the language that we know today on top of the scriptures, institutional. I think Christ preached what brings about change in history, and that is the gospel. And basically the gospel, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't there to politically take over Rome. He was there to teach the kingdom has come, and I will soon be king. And it's only my gospel that changes history. And then with that change, we begin to look around and try to impact the world. So I, I would agree with you. I think he basically teaches us mm -hmm. to look internal and see the need for salvation in the gospel. And then I think basically, as you go throughout the New Testament, you see the application of, of that in terms of making a difference in the world that you live. But I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and pull out, pull out red letter verses where, you know, he says, take, you know, build, build Christian schools. I mean, he didn't say that. Uh, go save the babies. Uh, he didn't say that, but he focused on what will lead to those things. I, I, and as you ask the question, Jason, I'm thinking I haven't the whole last couple of months in my just renewed reading. I don't think I, I don't even like the word institution. I don't think it's been in my thought process at all. Um, and as I read, even I think it is a hope-filled evangelism and the affect of it being bigger than I have been living for it to be. Um, I'm, I need to pause and think about the institution being the place of focused transformation. Uh, and, and I don't know, this is just for me personally. Um, I don't think I would go there right now. I think I would go there that it is essentially uh, the affect of the, the work of evangelism that we've been commanded to do to make disciples is probably more than just uh, some of the ways I've been interpreting it in the Amil text that I've pointed to. But I don't know that I am ready personally to say that a, a focus area is institutional. I think the focus area is evangelism in the places we have been placed. Now, it's a it's not far for me to get there to say, hey, what happens? What happens? Yeah. If six Christians are a part of the same department that's got 22 people over at 
said corporation down the road, what should happen in that department? How should it be more excellent than it was? You bet it should be. Should it have more integrity than it ever had before? You bet it should have. Should it have so, but I would never take the institutional thought as where my current journey is. Yeah. And I don't think of any that's, text would. That's good. True. Right. That's true. That makes sense. Yeah. And I'm sure you're still as optimistic as you were. Yeah. Marcus. Um, throughout church history, has there always been these three, four distinct views about So throughout church history, have there always been these three or four views? Prior to the 19th century, there were probably two. <laughs> um, I don't know when his, like a historic pre-mill would have actually developed, but a dispensational pre-mill view developed in what the uh, 1800s. 1800s? Mid 1800s, yeah. Yeah, yeah 1830s. Amy? Just one at a time. Yeah, I think all mill and post mill would say when he defeated his when he defeated death, yeah. he crushed he crushed Satan and when he took the throne. And, and Andy, most times you don't have the scriptures differentiate cross, resurrection, ascension. Right. They're all one thing of the victory of Christ. Right. Okay. Then how do how would you respond when someone says something to the effect of, "Man, I mean, and I'll be when we teach our kids, Satan is a real person, and if he is acting in the world today, because if he's bound, how does he still operate, or does he still operate?" Yeah. You know, how does evil even occur if Satan is bound? Well, but keep reading. What is he bound from? Just, just deceiving the nations. He's not bound from ripping out your soul. He's a he's a roaring lion, right? So basically, I mean, he's I think there's two levels. And for one, inside this particular text, he's bound from deceiving the nations, the broader impact. So he's still influencing. He still hates you. He's the ruler of this world. And even this Sunday, I'm going to preach just so everybody's aware, we get to get into demonic things in 1 Corinthians. Another surprise, just kind of, oh, Paul's going to tell us about idolatry is linked to the activity of demons in the world. So that's where we're at 
in a couple of days. So obviously there's demonic activity in the world. The one thing that stands out to me, and this is to Ben's question earlier, I think it was your question, Ben, when Satan is released from being bound or, or Rod, it was your question or something, one of you, it, we're, it, will be, it will be awful worse than it is now. So what does it mean as to the binding of Satan now, the power of the enemy of our souls? We don't, we don't know. know. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. We'd be foolish to sit in and say, oh, no, it can't be now. Well, I don't mind saying something that might get me in trouble, but I would, I'd be cautious to saying it's now. Yeah. It's better to say it could be now. Just like when I was first exposed to kind of some of the institutional commentary of a post-mill position or whatever. I remember arguing with a, a, a classmate in seminary who said all the technological advance of the world evidence the post-mill position as showing the progress. And he, he brought, up, brought up like pasteurized milk. And, t and I was like, are you kidding me? We're going to have a discussion about pasteurized milk. My grandfather was a farmer. Like I didn't, but, but there's not pasteurized milk in so many different third world countries of the world. Are you saying that, that there's progress here, but not there? Cause that's the, pro so we have to be careful on both sides. One, we got to be careful on the side of saying, I know when Satan's unbound and released, and this is really the time now, cause it's bad here. This is the tribulation that the Bible was talking about. This is it. We gotta be careful not to say that. Just as I think we gotta be careful on the other side when we see progress of this kind of yeah. the other saying, that's it. This is the semi-golden era that, that I knew the Bible was saying was going to happen. Um, there have been some foolish things said on both sides, I think, some non-cultural, non-contextual declarations. And you also have Genesis 3, where the serpent's head is crushed. So Satan, I think even as Reformed Christians, we can, believe, we can know that Satan's running around with his head crushed. And so in a sense, we know he hates us, but we also, we don't, at least how as, as, as I view it and tried to pass on to my children, we don't see him around every bush. We don't. We, we don't walk in life to where we are. We are seeing him everywhere, um, and consumed by that. We have. He's crushed. He is pissed. You know. He he wants to have. He wants to go back and be able to destroy the nations. And he's walking around with a smashed head. So I think that to me that is um, a more biblical view to take in terms of his impact in the world. But never should we stray away from the fact that he's looking. He's also looking every day to, to, to ruin your testimony. Yeah, and I just add, I'm thinking about the fact of, of how it talks about he's bound from deceiving the nations, especially if you read the whole book of Revelation to get the context of that. I mean, there's so much about the nations being there before the throne. And then if you think about since Christ's coming, death, resurrection, ascension, all that, I mean, what has happened with, with believers? It's gone from basically Jews to all the nations. And so I think the evidence for that and seeing how Satan, how he is bound in that, but he's not, he's bound, but not, uh, he's not defeated totally, totally no, yet. Yeah. He's crushed, but no, that, that not final defeat, defeat not comes, defeat. you know, yeah. after this. So. Did you have more, brother? That was it. Okay. All right. We've probably got, we're probably getting close time wise. So just a couple more. I'll, I'll, Devil, the serpent, with that, are we talking one being, or is this, it can't be anything, it can't be anywhere at once, like, right. God. No, no, it'd be one being, one, one being. being. Okay, one being. Yeah. Sorry. Jim. You were just talking about, when you look at your life, and said, okay, we're going down the subject, but we're kind of bound, I've been going out five minutes. Great word, bound, because maybe Satan's, I mean, he's out there, but he's bound.
front of me right now and we, we can look at it but we don't have it but i'm looking at the text in john in mark i think it's mark one or so that's what I, I instead of just looking here it's probably the same word but it's a parable jesus told and so you have the teaching of christ uh mark one um where is it Jim, I don't have your answer right now. We'll look at that and get back to you. Yeah. So, uh, regarding the importance of is it that believers have the wrong kind of view or a not well formed view, and that's why they're kind of looking with despair and dread to the future, or is it that they, you know, are neglecting, I guess, a lot of the rest of the word, which talks about, you know hope and the things that we should think on and continue to encourage each other uh or i guess kind of where's the the giving up of the blame within that i mean so i guess regarding the importance of having a well-formed eschatological view you know if you just focus on you know a lot of i guess the the more basic i guess tense for preaching in scripture i guess does it kind of prevent a lot of those errors in the first place and kind of straying off course can i say yes <laughs> <laughs> I'll add a thought because um, looking at stuff here, but um, I think one of the reasons that that people have despair is because they're thinking about what's going to happen before Jesus comes back. That that's been my experience of talking with like like a lot of that fear comes from the tribulation that they think is going to happen, and then they look at the headlines, which you mentioned. And they, they just think like, oh, like it's it's today. But the funny, I mean, people for a long time have thought the headlines say that it's now. Um, so I think thinking about the time rather than thinking about the, the reign of Jesus, I think that's been one thing that's been helpful for me is, is again, just thinking Jesus is reigning. Jesus will return. And, and my eyes should be focused upon that. Now, now in this time, there's going to be suffering, but there's also going to be advance. There's going to be the gospel is going to go forward. And, and I think that's one thing we've got to hold on to. So, so will it keep us from kind of falling on those edges like you were talking about? Know that the gospel is going to advance, but also know that there is going to be suffering. And what it's going to look like in my life right now, I don't know. So, so, so I think there's enough hopeful encouragement in Scripture to give us a very hopeful life and not have our eschatology well-defined. Yeah. Good point. One of the things we talk about uh, next time we do this, uh, Mark mentioned in the early 20th century
so by not giving people ministers were openly denying the scripture, denying the resurrection, denying the birth and birth, and staying in good standing with the Presbyterian church. And because of that, uh, the church was lost. But part of that, a big part of that was the failure of the three ones to engage the situation. Excellent. Your wife. Uh, yeah, because the Presbyterians hold the, if you hold the Reformed faith, it is the purest, the purest application of Scripture. So we 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 held the kings, kings, the kingdom, and we didn't we didn't stick to it. Yeah. If you hold the Reformed faith, Reformed faith is. <laughs> hey. I don't have a Greek definition of the word bound with me, but can I give a visual that might help? I want you to picture the, you know, imprisoned, you know, mob leader that's bound, but still finds a way to get his, his, his crew to do his will in Chicago or said city that he has once dominated. He's bound. Whomever you want it to be. <laughs> And the influence is still happening. The city's not safe. People still are aware of the dangers lurking because things are still alive and well in some regards, but he's bound. Then he gets out. He's unbound. And all who caused his people trouble while he was locked up, he's going to do what he can. He'll be destructive. He doesn't feel the law anymore. It'll be awful. That'd be what the word bound means to me and unbound as an image, but I don't have the Greek in front of me. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's the same word that's used in Matthew 12, 29, where Jesus says, how can a strong man take from another? He, he goes in and he binds him and then he can take his plunder. So I think that adds to that visual as well. Krista. Something that makes sense is that it says that I'm seeing some connections from one of our previous equipped seminars the post-built position in Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. So, try to explain what I mean. Like, the, the, something you said that earlier was that our life is not abstract. It's real. We want real transformation. And that, I think, got my wheels turning about what Piercy was saying about we really don't, we don't want to, our culture drives this mind-body split. That there's like this spiritual or mental reality versus and that we're not one. I'm seeing some, some connection there between like the personal position of it's not just this transformation internally, but it's happening uh, externally. Is that a misunderstanding of not seeing that in an office position? Or is that, a, I don't know, is that a fair connection to make there? And AJ, help you make sense. Well, I don't want to beat up. I don't want to beat up the Armio position that they can't do that. No. But certainly, I think um, with PFC being a disciple of Schaefer and, and his emphasis on the culture, um, and I like Jason's reminder around, you know, a good reminder to me, not get hung up too much on the term institution. But I think the cultural, not dividing the spiritual, you know, from the salt and the meat and potatoes. You know, I think PFC, you know, I forget whether Schaefer called himself a post mill or not, but. But, but certainly what he taught and PFC teaches is we can't divide the spiritual from, you know, from what is right in front of us. And our mills can claim that as well. 
Yeah, and I, I would think that for the Amil, and there'd still be the connection with Piercy, but some of their um, anticipation of the more material blessings yeah. in prosperity would be still to come. Whereas the post bill may bring more of True. those into this time before Christ's return. Like the Amil is going to see more of a spiritual reign now and then some of those still bodily, but those would still be more after Christ's return, I think. Yeah, so, and I'm aware, I know we're aware of time, so that may be a question I would ask of you to think about as you leave. Do you have an optimistic view of the reign of Christ right now? Never mind Amil, never mind post mill. How does, never, him, how, how does him reigning, how does that impact? How, Jesus you? reigns. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. How optimistic are you every time you're around someone else's sin? Every time you look in the mirror, you see your own sin? Every time you go to work and you realize you're a Christian in that workplace? Every, everywhere you go. How optimistic are you right now as to the affect of the reign of Jesus in, in your heart, in your life, and in the world around you? That's what tonight's been... We're not trying to do a bait and switch and say, come and we'll talk about the end times. No, we're not. We're going to talk about today. That's not what our goal was tonight, but that's actually the whole point. Do you have a robust expectation, anticipation, participation in the reign of Christ right now? It'll be your eschatological writ if you start to really question what is it that I believe. So maybe that's a way to wrap up, Tom's uh, sake. I think it's great. Mark, would you close us in prayer? Sure, yes. Father, we thank you for the gift you've given us in Christ. We thank you that, that we live under King Jesus. We thank you that you've given us hearts and you would call us to be a people of gratitude for the work of Christ and what he has done for your people and calls us each day to you. I bless us this evening as we return to our homes and for the coming weekend and for the preached word on Sunday. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you all. Thanks. Thank you guys.